like many, um, many churches, BCBC here has what we call a mission statement, something at the very core of who we are and what we seek to be about. And then it has a series of what we call core values, things that we really hold to be important that we want to really set the tracks upon who we are. Um, if you're a board me- a member of the ECLT, you're not allowed to answer this because you got a quiz yesterday about it. How many core values do we have as a church? Okay, we have to get this right. How many core values do we have as a church? Seven. Seven. Okay, good. Seven core values. One of these core values is on preaching and teaching. And here's what it is. It says it um, on the screen. Okay, we value preaching and teaching that is faithful to God's revealed truth. That's a great phrase. And delivered in ways that are relevant and life-transforming. It also says on our website, folks, if you go look it up, we envision a community of faith that is dedicated to relevant, biblically faithful, life-transforming preaching and teaching. But i got to tell you that a core value is no good if it's simply written on a piece of paper or hanging on a wall in an office somewhere. We need to do it. We need to put it into practice. And so it is with God's Word. We're doing a series this fall called Taking One Step Forward. It says no matter where you are in your spiritual life, what does it mean to take one step forward? Uh, Last Sunday, Pastor Cindy talked about taking a step forward into prayer. Sunday before that, we talked about taking a step forward into baptism. Today we're going to talk about going deeper into God's Word. But let's just be honest this morning. Um, Most of us, most of us would have to admit that we do not read that God's Word, the Bible, has revealed truth as much as we should or as carefully as we should. And without any kind of guilt, because I don't believe guilt's a biblical motive. Let me just dialogue with you for a moment and ask, why is that? Where do we struggle with getting into God's Word to the, the kind of depth and intensity and passion that we really should have? Where are our problems? Where do we struggle with? Remember when I do this, it means it's your turn to talk. Okay, we got that right? Them is the rules, okay? Where do we struggle? No guilt, just like, just be honest for a moment. Just say, here's where I really struggle. Time, okay? We struggle with time. We, we don't have enough time. Okay, something else. Priorities. Okay, what are we prepared really to put first in our lives? Because so often other things just kind of bump up the list and they become first, like going to work or something. I'm sorry? Financial situations. That causes worry, and so that really kind of um, slows us down. Yeah, somebody else. Distractions. What kind of things distract us? Family distracts us? Yeah, okay. Do you want to talk about that later, Melanie, with your mom and dad and, and whatever? Okay. Okay. Something else. Begins with a T. Television. Okay? Television was introduced to North America at the Seattle World's Fair. Can't remember the date. But they said about this little box with a moving picture in it. The American people will not 
follow that. They will not sit for hours and watch these moving pictures. And the Seattle Wars family said television will be a failure. Didn't work. Okay. Anything else? What really kind of just gets in our road? Email. Okay. Huge distraction these days. Unless this past week you were had BlackBerry and you were on rim because you didn't get emails at all. I understand for about three days. Okay. One more. You can never find your Bible. <laughs> okay, well, I thank you for your honesty. You need to kind of put away your car keys are or something like that. But I think in all of our lives, we just really know there's things that kind of get in the road. And sometimes we say, well, I, I really don't know how to study the Bible well. I, I get lost in it, and it's way, written 2,000 or more years ago. I don't know how relevant it is for today. Remember it says that the church is to do relevant Biblically, faithfully preaching. I, I teach a, a class after this over at the Mobile School. And so this morning we're going to look at some of the tools we can, we can get to do really good Bible study. If you want to come along and kick the tires with us this morning, come along and do that. Uh, we meet at 11.30. We go for an hour at the uh, library over at the school. You're welcome to come and join. As you know, I've told you before, I was born in the city of Glasgow. Um, long, long time ago. <laughs> and if you went and visited Glasgow today, I think some of you have done that. Some of you shared that with me. If you went to Glasgow today and you bought a souvenir for Glasgow, you bought maybe a teacup or a plate or a little you know, spoon with a crust on the top of it, you would find the motto of the city of Glasgow would say, let Glasgow flourish. Okay, That's the motto that you would find on all kinds of teacups and spoons and all kinds of trinkets and stuff you could buy at the gift stores. You could come back and say, oh, we visited Glasgow, it's a nice city, and this motto is let Glasgow flourish. But if you actually dug into the history of the city of Glasgow, you would find that the full motto of the city of Glasgow was this, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. Isn't that different? Glasgow, you see, was founded in the 6th century by a monk. He was called St. Kentigern. And somewhere in the history of the, of the city, the motto became, let Glasgow flourish. And they understood that the city would only flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. And I don't think anybody today in Glasgow, other than me, really knows that that's what the motto of the city of Glasgow is. It was only used once in the 20th century. 1955, when Dr. Billy Graham came to Kelvin Hall, the big arena, and the motto, the full motto of the city of Glasgow was put up. Let Glasgow flourish, not just socially, economically, but by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. We live in a timeline when the Bible, frankly, is on the sidelines for most people. It's not on the radar screen. They simply don't know what it is. They don't know what it's about. Many people today would not even have a Bible in their homes and have no clue how to manage it. One time, some years ago in our, our church in Victoria, where I was for many years, um, just at the end of the service, at the end of our response song, a lady about mid-40s, very well-dressed, um, um, Caucasian lady, came down the aisle. Her face was beaming, absolutely beaming. And as she got close to me, she said to me, I've got it. I finally got it. I understand it now. And I thought, she's figured out who Jesus is. And I'm marvelous. And we'll lead her to Jesus. I was used to kneeling with people at the end of the service and praying with them, whatever it might be. She says, I finally got it. 
And I said to her, I didn't know who she was, didn't know her name. I said, what have you finally got? She says, I have finally figured out that you keep talking every Sunday about this book called the Bible. And I figured out that the Bible's got part one and part two. Okay? She says, I figured that out. I'd like to go buy one. What do I ask for to buy the part that Jesus was in? Now, can you understand how in Canada, in our society, someone, a lady, mid-40s, realtor, works for the government, I don't know why, could actually figure out that she'd never heard anything about the Bible. She'd been at our church for some weeks and figured out now two parts. How do you buy the part that Jesus is in? And George Barnard, the Christian sociologist, says we no longer have agnostics. People who don't believe. We've got what he calls agnostics. People who simply do not know. So the Bible, you need to understand, is on the sidelines for most of our society. People today are trying to live with their feet firmly planted in midair, without the remotest clue of personal ethics, no moral compass, no objective point of reference. We live in a culture today that is swamped by what we call a series of isms. Let me just, this is philosophy 101. Let me just give you a quick list of some of the isms that are floating around in our atmosphere today. Can I get that next screen up? Okay, thank you. We live in a day of relativism, which means that for a great majority of people, there is no absolute truth. Or we live in the gospel of pragmatism. For some people, truth is simply whatever works, whatever will get you through the day, whatever will get the next sale, that's pragmatism. We live in a day of pluralism, in which says that there's no large one truth over everything in our lives or over our country. Rather, there are lots of little truths. And they can collide with each other, but it doesn't matter. And all of these little truths are equal. We need to understand that Canada is officially a pluralistic country in which people say there are many, many ways to God. We live in a day of humanism in which people can say we can live, frankly, without God. We try to make sense of life without God. We live in a time of hedonism. Hedonism is the Greek word for pleasure. And so life is to be lived simply for our pleasure to make us feel contented and good and happy. Or for many people to live in a gospel of what we call existentialism. comes from um, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, French philosophers, in which life is simply eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so there is no past, there is really no future, and so just live in pleasure simply for this moment. For many people, folks, these are the gospels that really shape their life and their culture. But in this confusing and darkening moral stage, God intends there to be a people who will shine like lights in the darkness, who have more than a moral compass, rather they have a spiritual compass. And they live by it. People who know and live out of God's revealed truth. There's many ways we can look at this this morning. What I share with you in these next few minutes is really only one. If you have a Bible this morning, that is like our friend here, if you found it, you can bring it to church. Or if you've got an iPod or an iPad or an iPhone or an iSomething uh, that works. Turn with me to um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It gives you the reference number and the bullet for what it is in our, in our um, pew Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you got it, it says to us, All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for four things. We're going to see those in just a minute. When it says it's God-breathed, it means literally that God breathed it out 
It does not tell us how people took it in. And this Bible has got four purposes to us. Okay, number one. Can I get my next screen up? Is it working or not? Okay, thank you. It's got four purposes. Number one is it's there to teach us truth. It is there to teach us doctrine. Because we do live in a day of relativism and pluralism and humanism. Remember the question that Pilate asks Jesus. He asks, what is truth? God's word is to be the objective plumb line by which we live. Not your opinion. Just thought about it. Um, Remember the movie A Few Good Men? Tom Cruise and Jack... Help me. Nicholson, thank you. Remember their, their, their clash in the courtroom? Remember what he says? One says to the other, You can't handle the truth. The people that they want to know what truth is. The Bible gives us God's revealed truth. Secondly, it reproves us. That means it tells us where we're going off course, where we need to get back, where we're going wrong. Thirdly, it corrects us. That means it brings us back onto the right path again to realign our lives. And fourthly, it says, it trains us in righteousness. That's the word for pediatrics. God trains us from being little children to being mature men and women. And the purpose of these four things working together is this. Verse 17, if you find it in your Bible. So that it says, all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And being equipped is a picture of when people roll in, if fire people roll in, or firefighters, or police roll in, and they've got a whole bunch of equipment, they have to know how to use it. Think of a fire truck rolling into the scene of an accident and not knowing how to use their equipment. They know how to use it because they've been trained to use it. God expects His people to be trained in His Word for living. Life can be dangerous. Life can be tough. And the Christian today who's going to survive and thrive will need to be equipped, most of all, in the Scriptures. And the primary piece of equipment that God puts us in our hands that we are obligated to know is His Word, His revealed truth. Without that, may I suggest to you next week, we are facing nothing less than spiritual suicide. And this morning, just in headings, let me give you five things that the Bible equips us to do. Equips us to do five things in our lives. I'm going to work fast and hard. You've got to work with me and we'll see where we go. First of all, it equips us to know God. God does not play hide and seek with us. God wants us to know Him. Do you know that we live in a beautiful, beautiful part of the world? Do you know that? You drive over the Lionsgate Bridge and you see the North Shore Mountains and the sun comes up again and you just say, Wow! God does that. And he does it every morning. Volume 1, for God telling us about himself, is creation. God reveals his power, his majesty, his work. The Psalms say to us, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. But if that's all we have, we're short on our knowledge of God. So volume 2 in the Bible is, is the Bible. That's where we learn about his character. It's where we learn about His love, about His holiness, about dying on the cross, what makes Him cry, where His heart is, and how He feels towards us. So we need volume 2, we need the Bible, to really tell us what the heart of God is all alike. 2,000 years ago, history would tell us that a man died on the cross. That's a fact. 
But you need to understand, turn to the Bible to understand why. He died on the cross because God loved us. He died for our sins. He died to make us whole again. He died to reconcile us to God. And so we need to turn to his revealed word to understand his heart. There is nothing in creation that will give us and tell us the truth about heaven and that one day that Jesus would return. You will only find that in God's word. So what does the Bible do? Number one, it equips you to know God. And if at any point you say in your life, I want to know God and more about this God, then you need to be opening the pages of his revealed word to understand what's, what's there. Secondly, it equips us to know ourselves. Uh, most of us this morning, we, we look in the mirror when we are kind of getting dressed and getting ready for church. and We brush our hair or whatever's left of it. Um, we may not always like what we see. And do you know that the Bible is the mirror of our soul? The Bible holds up a mirror before us and tells us who we really are on the inside. The Bible tells us that we're not a cosmic accident. The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. In fact, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It tells us this image was broken and fell apart. And then someone called Jesus, who also is in the image of God, came and he's involved in putting us all back together again. The Bible tells us that every one of our lives is valuable and precious and worthwhile because we're made in the image of God. When we used to work in Vancouver and downtown and I sometimes would drive home and sadly I would see some young girl, sometimes a young man, standing at the street corner offering themselves for sale. And I never had the courage to do this. But I, sometimes I wanted to stop the car and get out and say, do you know, you are precious and you are valuable. And you're worth more than this. You're not just a body to be sold for half an hour to somebody. You are a whole person whom God loves. I wish I had the courage to do that sometimes. Because the place that we understand that we're loved and valuable is in the Bible. Genesis says to us right in the beginning that we're made in the image of God. I wanted to say to these young men and young women standing at street corners... You are made in the image of God. You're a whole person. Don't throw yourself away for this. You are worth so, so much more than that. The Bible tells us we've not arrived. That we're falling short of the glory of God. But God loves us. And like the father in that well-known story, he's always waiting for his prodigal children to come home. And if we allow it, the Bible has to, the ability to do some deep and penetrating surgery and healing in our lives. The Bible would be like a scalpel that would cut into our lives and bring healing and seek to end our pain. Here's a verse in Hebrews. I'm going to pause over it for a moment. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you ever think about that? The Bible it's saying gets right inside us. Nothing is creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And here's a phrase you need to understand. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. There's a picture there. Everything is laid bare, okay? The word comes from the Greek word. You've got a couple of Greek lessons today. The word trachea. 
Now, if you've got a medical background, doctors, nursing, whatever it might be, what's your trachea? Kathy's got it. It's your throat. It's down in there. And here's what that word really means, and here's how it works. I need to use someone in this, someone who will trust me. Johnny. <laughs> I didn't tell him about this. You trust me, Johnny? Yeah. <laughs> you know that God loves you? Yes, I do. And you know that one day you're going to go to heaven? Hope it's not today. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Um, the picture comes out of Greek wrestling. And the idea was that if your opponent... Oh, you have to trust me, Johnny. Okay. That if your opponent was able to reach and get hold of your trachea, your windpipe, and hold it, and squeeze it, and squeeze it, and squeeze it. You still there? You're turning a little red, okay? <laughs> you would lost the match, and you might lose your life. Because the one area that you protected in your wrestling was your trachea. Because if your opponent got in here and managed to get his hands around you, and you and I could not break free of that, okay, you had lost and maybe you were gone. Thank you very much. Now think about that verse. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It is saying to us, that the Bible is wanting to get into the heart and core of our lives. And to do that, it is asking us to expose our throat to God. It is asking us to take the risk of believing that God is not a rapist. God is our lover. And in loving us, He wants to, to engage with us. And will I trust Him enough not to protect my throat or my whole life and say, get out of here. But will I trust them enough that I'm willing to expose my throat and lay bare my life to Him so that He can come into me and find out the thoughts and judgments of my heart? It's really the prayer of David at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Do you understand that prayer? David is saying, God, I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to hide myself anymore. I will come and I will expose myself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And I invite you to come and to get inside me so that as I read and study and reflect on the Scriptures, I can come to know myself. So you see, the Bible... Excuse me. The Bible helps us to know ourselves as we trust our lives to this intimate, searching light of God's Word. Will you let it do that this week? Number three. The Bible equips us to make godly choices. I was sharing this a couple of weeks ago as we were sharing an adult class. I used to teach at a Bible school a couple of times a year. Students were always asking me what was God's will for their lives. Is this the person I should marry? What city should I live in? What job should I take? What is God's will in all these questions? And I used to say to them, that's the wrong question. God's will is simple. For every one of us, same thing. says in Thessalonians, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. That we walk and live holy lives. Okay? The Bible does, I don't believe specifically says who to marry, what job to take, what city to live in. It guides us in these things. That's a different question, by the way. That question is, how do I make godly choices? 
one of the most transforming aspects in God's will in us will be his work at developing our skill and expertise in making good and godly choices. Good moral choices cannot be made in the heat of the moment. They cannot be made in a moral emergency if we are unprepared and ill-equipped. Rather, every time and every day and every week, we read God's revealed word. We're getting ready for those moral decisions that we will have to make sometime. One of the serious problems, I believe, that the church in North America has been facing with is a streak of anti-intellectualism. We have forgotten the place and the necessity of the mind in this work of renewal and transformation. Rather, we have been seduced by our society in turning to our feelings, to rely on our feelings, to give us direction to justify our actions, and at times, frankly, to rationalize our sin. That is a recipe for disaster. Remember some years ago, um, Debbie Boone's lovely romantic song, You Light Up My Life. Remember that? We sing all you... Light of my life. Come on. Do, 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 do. And then the line in it, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. I was watching a Christian TV talk show a little while ago. And the host said as he was talking and dialoguing, he interviewed a guest. He said, I would like to get to the place where I can rely solely on my heart and not my mind. I wanted to stand up and scream. That's terrible. Romans chapter 12, 2 says, We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, not our feelings, our minds. And that is how we build and nurture what's called a Christian worldview, which, by the way, is in our seven core values. It's not so much what we see, but how we see it. And one of the most important books I read in 1963 in university was a book called The Christian Mind. And here's how it defines it. A Christian mind is the prerequisite for Christian thinking. And Christian thinking is the prerequisite for Christian action. We have bought into the lie that God wants me to be happy. Well, that's nice. But the real truth is that God wants me to be holy, to walk in obedience, not just happiness. The fundamental deception of Satan is that obedience can never bring happiness. But godly choices, folks, come out of God's word. And the best place you can find wisdom for daily life, you know what? Is in the book of Proverbs. See, how do I read Proverbs? Very simple. You read Proverbs one chapter on today's date. So on the first day of the month, read chapter 1. Second day, read chapter 2. The third day, read chapter 3. Now, I know it's got 31 chapters, and not all of our months of 31 days. But don't worry about that, okay? You simply will grow in wisdom, and your decisions will reflect the practical wisdom of God for daily life. Step forward into Proverbs for the rest of this year. Every day, a chapter a day, and you will deepen your life in the wisdom that you need for living. So you see, our culture of relativism, no absolutes, pragmatism, whatever works is true. God's word is there to help us make wise and godly choices. And we will live by the kind of life that will not fall when the storms of life come. Got to keep moving. Four, the Bible equips us to face temptation. Our world is a dangerous place. We teach our young people, our children, our grandchildren, not to talk to strangers. We teach them how to watch for traffic as they cross the road. The Bible tells us that the world is a risky place to live like a Christian. It is seductive. 
And so it needs to be utterly clear about teaching us how to avoid temptation. We need to teach young people about the power of sex. It warns us that sex always starts inside us. Sex does not start in the bed. It starts in our minds. You learn that from the story of David. Who one day saw this lady called Bathsheba bathing one evening as he walked on the palace roof. Now, I don't know anybody who takes a bath with their clothes on. So David looked. Looked again. And the sin of adultery and murder and all that David did began as an idea. Sin always begins in the mind. The Bible teaches us that sin can be avoided. We don't have to say, I just couldn't help it. I was tempted. There is a crucial gap between the temptation and the act of sinning. We learn that from the story of Joseph. One day in part of ourselves, remember Joseph? The young man had really tailored lovely clothes. His brothers hated him, left him in a pet, and then eventually sold him into Egypt. One day in Potiphar's house, as a young man, there's no one home. It's a warm Egyptian afternoon. And Potiphar's wife says, Joseph, there's no one home. Let's you and I go to bed. And what does Joseph do? He turns and runs. Do you know what that led to 13 years in prison? That decision to turn and run, 13 years in prison. But out of that, Joseph was raised up and he became the president of the wheat board for Egypt. Because he was someone in whom the wisdom of God rested. The Bible teaches us that what we sow, we reap. You don't have to believe that, it really doesn't matter. But that's how life works anyway. The Bible teaches us about the need for accountability. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Satan demands to have a man, a person, by himself. But the ultimate resource, our best handbook, in our ability to recognize and resist temptation, is the truth and power of God's word at work in your life and in mine. If you have a Bible open with you, turn back with me please to Matthew Matthew chapter 4. Chapter 4. Temptation of Jesus. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And you know this story. Uh, the tempter says, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now here's a little Greek lesson for this morning, but important. The usual word in the New Testament for word is the Greek word logos. L-O-G-O-S. Have I got that up? There it is, thank you very much. Here it does not use logos. It uses another word which is the word rema. And rema means not just the word of God generally. We can go to church and say, we believe in the Bible. That's not good enough. Rema is a more specific word, a specific truth, or a specific promise. In other words, I need to know what the Bible says as it speaks into this situation which I am facing right now. And to do that, you need to know what the Word of God says. That word rhema, by the way, is also used in Ephesians chapter 6. Take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, it's not just saying, I go to a church that believes the Bible. But I know what the Bible says about this situation and that situation, about finances, about worry, about marriage, about sex. I know what the Bible says about these kinds of things. And I know how to apply it. When we sin... The Bible tells us what to do. We confess it to God. We ask for forgiveness and then we move on. You know it's against the law in B.C. to ride a motorcycle without a helmet. It should be against the law for 
Christians to step outside their doors on a Monday, Tuesday mornings and onto the dangerous space of the world with a good grasp of God's revealed truth. The authority and the power of God's word in our lives. Without that, we are putting ourselves in spiritual danger. We really are. Here's the last one. You've listened well this morning. The Bible equips us to find, to face the crises of life with faith and with hope. I know, as I get to know you in this congregation, that many of you have experienced the reality that life is not easy. And life is not always fair. The Bible, by the way, never said that life would be fair. How do we live? How do we live with faith and hope? When life is hard, when things are tough, do you know that the Bible has a collection of characters who will step out of the pages and onto the stage of our life and speak to us? They hear us when we cry out. And you know what they say? Been here, done that. Whatever you're facing, Tom, been here and done that. Romans chapter 15. This is a great verse. If you don't know it, just write the reference down. Romans 15 verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Everything that's been written in the Bible was written so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So when we're in the pit of despair turn to one of the Psalms of David that you should know. And cry out to God. When you're ready some days in life to pack it in, go back and read Psalm 73, a man called Asaph who was the leader of worship in the temple. When we're angry and down and hopeless, we find that he has been there too. When you wonder, why do bad, why do bad things happen to good people and things do not go in life as they should? Turn to a little book, four chapters in the Old Testament. It's called Habakkuk. And Habakkuk begins, How long, O Lord, must I cry for help? But you don't listen. I cry out to your violence and you don't save me. What, what makes me look at injustice and why do I tolerate wrong so much? Habakkuk works through that. And here's how he ends. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no grapes in the vine and the olive crop fails. Though the fields produce no food, there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Savior. When we struggle with the enigma and the puzzle of faith, a man called Job steps up of the shadows and says, I've been there. When we're doubting something in our life, Thomas comes and whispers in our ears and says, I know exactly what you're going through. When we fail in some deep way and and dissolve in tears and end up down on our knees, somebody called Peter appears and kneels down beside us and puts his arm around us and says, let me tell you about the time that I failed Jesus. But Jesus didn't give up on me. And Peter says to us, take heart, come on, take my arm and let me lift you back up on your feet again, Tom. You see, the Bible says life may throw a lot of stuff at us. And some days it is not fair. But you can hang on. And God says, I will be your God. And I will not leave you and forsake you. And I will promise you that nothing, that nothing, nothing can separate you from my love in you. There is nothing else in the world will tell us that. And we will only know that if we know the pages and the lines and the words of Scripture.
for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We might have hope. So you see, the Bible is God's word for our lives. It's God's power in us. He's committed to change each and every one of us day by day into the likeness of Jesus. A very simple place to start. Make sure when you come here on Sunday mornings, you bring your Bible to church. When you're reading it during the week, learn to follow it. I'll encourage you very much to be part of a small group here at VCBC that studies the Bible. Perhaps, as Pastor Cindy has led us in the last couple of weeks, to be connected to a small group that follows and tracks with the Sunday sermons that we're doing here. So you can take this idea and say, how does that really work in my life? Most nights before I go to bed, I go to our kitchen cupboard and open it up. And I go pour myself a bowl of cornflakes. I like a bowl of cornflakes before I go to bed. Weird, eh? Whatever. Some years ago, cornflakes began an ad for cornflakes. Good old-fashioned cornflakes. You know what the ad, the, the catch line for the ad was? Taste them again for the first time. Go back to good old-fashioned cornflakes. Taste them again for the first time. What I'm trying to do this morning is encourage you to taste God's word again. Like it's for the first time. I know time's an issue. It isn't your life. It isn't mine. I know television's an issue. It isn't my life. But what does it mean to turn off the TV for 30 minutes? Put off your computer game. Put down the newspaper. Turn away from your computer and your email. Put down your Blackberry or your phone, whatever it is. And make a fresh commitment to study God's word to our lives. Read Proverbs. Every day of the month, this is October the 16th, right? 16th. So today you'd be reading chapter 16. Start there. It really doesn't matter. Start there. You know the Bible, the book of Proverbs is about, is about wisdom. The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokhmah. A chokhmah is the wisdom that you need just to live each life with wisdom and with skill. That is chokhmah. You know, God has given us these ancient words so that we would take them and we would read them every day. It's kind of like cornflakes. Just read them again for the first time. I invite you to stand. Florence is going to lead us as we sing.